As I mentioned, we are in Epiphany Tide, or in the season after Epiphany. This is what we're calling ordinary time again. It's a time to give special attention, special focus to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he's done, what's happened to him, what's happened to us in him. It's a time to pay attention especially to him as the son of God, as he was revealed at his baptism, as the one who turns simple water into the best of wine at a wedding, as we just heard. As the one who is good news, he is the good news to the world, the good news of God, first to the Jew and then also to us Gentiles. So we're in the book of Romans. We're going to be there until Lent. And last week we looked at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And this is Paul's introduction to the letter, where he introduces us to a number of things. We learned that this is the letter about the good news of God concerning his son. Again, Jesus is the content of the gospel. We learned this is a letter written primarily to Gentiles, telling them about the Old Testament. What does that mean? What's a proper interpretation of the Old Testament? Although it's also, Paul references Jews, as we'll see this morning. Paul's goal, we heard last week, was the obedience of faith. He mentions that here at the beginning and then at the end. The obedience of faith that is rooted in this good news, that is God's power. That saves anyone who believes it. That unshackles them for life, for true living. That's what this gospel is. That's what it should do when we hear it and believe it. The next, the next unit we're going to be looking at here for the next two weeks is a large unit. It's chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. The focus of this unit is God's divine verdict on the human race. That's what we're reading. That's what we're hearing in this section. This week, we're going to focus on the first half. Next week, the other half. And for the readings on Romans, the verses that I'm going to be bringing to your attention, the ones we'll, we'll be hearing in the readings, are primarily from the New Revised Standard, the updated edition, which just came out a couple of weeks ago. A version they claim is, quote, the world's most meticulously researched, rigorously reviewed, and faithfully accurate English translation of the Bible. So it's one to, <laughs> that's a quite a claim. <laughs> um, we'll see if everybody agrees with that. But uh, so far, I've been pleased with it. Back to God's divine verdict on the human race. As I said, this is not flattering, to say the least. This is serious, a serious indictment. This is severe. There's no way around that. We read right off the bat, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and injustice. Maybe you're thinking, man, I, I thought we were talking about the good news, Paul. <laughs> what does this have to do with good news? Has Paul digressed? 
Like a bad preacher, did he say, I'm going to talk about this? And then suddenly he switches and talks about something totally different. This sounds more like bad news than good news. Well, I hope what you're going to see this week and in the next week and in the weeks to come, that while this is the harder part of the good news, the more difficult part of the good news, painful to our pride, severe, like a surgeon cutting in to somebody to remove cancer. That's what this section is like. And yet, it is part of the good news. An extremely important part, the part we must first accept in order to receive the rest of the good news. To start, let's notice all the fours. Again, prepositions are so important. If you want to go to the next slide, whoever's doing the slides. So we're going to back up a bit, just go to verses 16 and 17. This is what Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. There's no shame in this. For it is the power of God. It's God's salvation. It's his power for salvation. For in it the righteousness or the justice of God is revealed. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Some translations leave out some of those fours. But in the Greek, they're all there. They're all there to connect us, to see all of these are connected, even if it's not apparent to us off the bat how they are apparent. The good news is God's power that reveals his righteousness, his justice, and even his wrath. And when we believe this revelation, when we accept it, we give our yes to it, we are saved by this in all kinds of ways. God's wrath. I think as soon as some of us hear that, we either check out or we're triggered. We just don't want to listen anymore. The wrath of God is not his darker side. It's not some uncontrolled, unprovoked, bloodthirsty rage, is maybe how some of us hear it. It is his anger. It is, though, his appropriate anger, his righteous anger over all that's wrong in the world, especially over us and what's wrong in us. When things are wrong, when things are terribly wrong, when someone is holding other people hostage in a synagogue, that should get us angry. God gets angry at unrighteousness, at wickedness, appropriately. He should get angry when we take the truth about our creator. Paul says his reality, his eternal power, his divine nature, the fact that he made us and gave us life. And when we suppress that truth, when we hide it from ourselves, when we bury it deep in our subconscious, and we refuse to honor God, therefore, we refuse to turn around and give him thanks. Instead, we worship something he's made and give that ultimate significance. That should anger him. That deserves his wrath. 
And I think the more we come to know the goodness and the greatness of God, the more we, we start to understand that. And the more we suppress the truth about God from ourselves, the less we think about God, the less we will think of him. And, thus, and the less we're going to think that something like dishonoring God deserves something as severe as wrath. Until the Holy Spirit convicts us. Until the Holy Spirit does something like a, a divine psychoanalysis and shows us how we have been suppressing this truth and how our heart is an idol factory. And then we start to understand how wrong this is. I never understood how severe that was until the Holy Spirit convicted me. Paul says God expresses this anger in a surprising way. And we're going to have to unpack this actually more next week. But he expresses this righteous anger by actually giving us over to wickedness, to things that should not be done. He says he gives us over to this disordered desire, to lust, to sexual activity that contradicts the created givenness of our bodies. The natural creative givenness of our bodies that should determine our sexual behavior. Now that's, a, that's not a popular thing to say in our day. And that, to say that in public is many times to receive human wrath. But that's what Paul says. And of course, that's something that we need to say along with other things, and that's why our diocese is doing a class on gender and sexuality this week. That's why we have done a class on gender and sexuality, and we're going to be doing it again in the spring. There's lots that needs to be said alongside of those comments in our day. But back to Paul's point, God reveals, he expresses his, desire, his righteous anger over our idolatry by giving us over to things. By giving us over, he says, to every kind of injustice, evil, covetousness, envy, murder, deceit, gossip, slander, hating God, inventors of evil, rebelling towards parents, he mentions. That's just to mention a few of what he mentions. And he says, we know, even though, again, we can suppress this knowing deep in our subconscious, that we know whoever does those things deserves to die. And yet we don't just do them, but we applaud others who do them as well. Paul then turns his attention to the person who's tracking with him, right? Who's agreeing with Paul. Yeah, Paul. Those idolaters over there, they are guilty without excuse before God. They deserve God's wrath. They deserve to be given over to those kinds of things. And thank you, God, I'm not like one of those. Paul writes, and we can go to the next slide. He addresses this kind of person. Therefore, you, actually, you are without excuse, if you are thinking this way, whoever you are, when you judge others, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the same things. This indictment is on the liberals amongst us and the conservatives amongst us. Whatever camp you find yourself in that you think might be superior to another camp, this indictment is on you too. 
Paul is saying. Biblical scholar John Barclay, in his book, Paul and the Power of Grace, he says this description of sin that we've just read in Romans chapter 1 is actually a typical description of Gentile sin. This is how Jewish people would have described Gentiles and their sin. And he says this, many Jews, many Jewish texts of this time draw similar portraits of Gentiles, but there's a particularly close relationship between Romans chapter 1 and 2 and Wisdom of Solomon. Wisdom of Solomon is a book in what Protestants call the Apocrypha, one of these books between the Testaments. He says, there's a twist, though, between what Paul is saying and what you find in the wisdom of Solomon. After a lengthy diatribe attack against Gentile idolatry, the author of Wisdom of Solomon addresses God and insists that we Jews know better. Quote, it says there, for even if we sin, we are yours, knowing your power, but we will not sin because we know that you acknowledge us as yours. So Paul's tracking with the wisdom of Solomon here part of the way, and then he just diverges and says, no. We Jews, Paul putting himself there with Jews, we Jews are just as guilty without excuse as the Gentiles are. This was a polemic against Jews who thought they were an exception to the rule, to this indictment. Paul will make it clear by chapter 3, verse 9, after all he's been writing, he says, we have already charged. That is basically what I've been writing to up this point, you should get that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under the power of sin. There are no exceptions. That is God's divine verdict on the human race. His no that is heard loudest and clearest in his son on the cross. But in this section, we're also hearing an echo of that divine no on sin in Christ. And today, we hear an echo of that no when we look around us and see injustice and unrighteousness around us. So how does this relate to good news, maybe you're wondering? Paul gives us a hint in what comes next when he addresses this person who wants to be this exception to this divine verdict on the human race, blind to the fact that they are one of the accused. They think instead through the judge. They misunderstand both their place and the purpose of how this judgment is playing out, how God has set this up. So if you go to the next slide, we've heard this first sentence, so I'm gonna to jump to the second one. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that you, when you judge those who do such things and you, you do them yourselves, that you're gonna escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So why did Paul just suddenly shift there? Originally he was talking about good news, then he goes to wrath. And he's been talking about wrath and judgment, and now he's talking about the riches of God's kindness and forbearance, his patience. 
Well, Paul doesn't explain himself here. What I think we're getting here is a clue, what is made more clear throughout the rest of the letter, that the way God reveals his righteousness, his judgment, his wrath, is actually also an expression of the riches of his kindness. If you keep reading, that's meant to lead us to repentance. That is meant to lead us to the obedience of faith. That's going to be the bigger argument of the book that you need to press through. Many people read this first part and they check out and they miss what this was all about. Yes, it's about his wrath, but it's also about the riches of his kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance. Because the way he reveals his righteousness is also kindness, because faith in this revelation will lead to our justification in chapter 4. It leads to our, which leads to our peace with God, chapter 5 which leads to repentant, righteous living, chapter 6, which leads to liberty, chapter 7, which leads to the glorious liberty of the children of God, chapter 8. Those are the things we're going to be getting to in the weeks to come. But that's what affirming this good news that starts with God's no on sin in Christ does we get to learn that that no is the hard outer shell and within it is God's yes. One last thing. Why does Paul spend so much time highlighting our unrighteousness here? The injustice of the human race in contrast to God's righteousness and justice. Well, we can assume because he's, he's convinced it's true by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the way things are. He's also highlighting the main problem that the gospel addresses. But if we back up further, we can see what also Paul is doing. He's highlighting an aspect of the good news, a surprising aspect of how God gives grace and to whom. What, again, John Barclay calls the incongruity of grace. That God gives his gifts, these gifts of salvation in Romans, to the guilty. To those who don't deserve it. In his 600-page book, (laughs) I've got it right here if you want to look at it. Paul and the Gift. Um... It's worth reading (laughs) if you've got the time. If you don't have the time, he's got a 200-page version that just came out a few years ago that summarizes everything in there in a good way. But in this book, again, this is many people are considering this one of the most significant theological books in the last 10, 20 years, especially on Paul and grace. And I agree. He really sets out a helpful way forward for us understanding grace. And he... In this, he spells out six different ways people have defined grace. I only thought there was one way (laughs) for a long time. But no, there's a variety of ways to define grace. And he lays these out. So if we could go to the next slide. Six ways. Four of these ways he thinks we find in Scripture. He sees in Scripture, especially in Romans, two of which he doesn't see in scripture. 
or Romans. So it's really important to pay attention. Now as he, we lay out these words, he's not a poet, he's a, <laughs> he's a scholar. <laughs> so they're a little clunky, these words, some of them. First off, superabundance. This is about the size and the extent of great. It is extravagant, over the top, like when we shower someone with gifts. Or even better, Romans chapter 5, when sin abounds, grace all the more. There it is in Romans. Singularity. This is about God having one and only one character trait. I think this is a common thing in our day. So, for example, he is always and only a giver of gifts. So he would never, for example, judge or show wrath. Which doesn't exactly square with what we just heard in Romans 1 and 2. Three, priority. This is about timing and initiative. This is the gift giving comes before, prior to any response from the one receiving the gift. The initiation is, square, is solely with the giver. So creation is an, a, a great example. God creates us before we could offer any kind of response, obviously. Or in Romans later, chapter, te, chapter 8, God predestines us to be called, justified, glorified. These are things prior to anything we could do to receive the gift. Incongruity. This is about correspondence or a lack of correspondence. For example, when God gives us in the gospel, what he gives us there is not at all related to our moral worthiness. It doesn't mean we have no worth before God. We can have ontological worth before God. But moral worthiness is another thing. Here in, in Romans, we hear God justifies the ungodly. That's not a match. That is a mismatch. And this understanding of grace is exceptional in human history. This is not how people understand gift giving. You don't give gifts to those who don't deserve it. You give them to people who do deserve it. That's the appropriate thing to do. So this is surprising in the history of the world. If it's normal to us, it's because we've been living with that news for so long. Efficacy, this is about power, the effect. The gift has the ability to do what it's accomplished to do. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and when we believe, that's what happens to us and with us. Finally, non-circularity. This is about motivation. In order for something to be a true gift, I should not expect any response, any return, any relationship from the gift. That's the pure gift. According to Barclay, and many others now are paying attention to this, this is a modern idea of grace. Prior to 500 years ago, you don't see this understanding, not even in the scriptures. I'm going to come back to these different definitions of grace and sermons to come. So if you're, this is new and this is throwing you for a loop, it's hard to get a handle on, don't worry, we're coming back to these. The big one to pay attention today to finish with is the incongruity of grace. That is certainly what Paul is bringing our attention to in this section. And throughout his whole letter, God gives the gifts and the gift of the gospel to the guilty, the unrighteous, the unjust. So once you can 
come to terms with that, once you can accept that, you're free to do what G.K. Chesterton did and is said to have done when the Times of London in the early 1900s asked several prominent authors, what's wrong with the world today? And his response was this, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> you can admit that. You're free to do that, believe that, because, well, first of all, it's true. Because that is God's verdict in Jesus Christ on the human race. And because, as we will see more and more, this is actually part of the good news. Good news that is God's power, his almighty saving power for anyone who hears it and trusts it. And eventually that's going to deliver you from every bit of shame in your life. And it's going to unshackle you for living in the fullest sense of that word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good news in Jesus Christ. And I do trust there are some here who find this part of it very hard. And I pray for those especially that they would be able to hear this as they need to. And whatever stands in the way of them hearing that, you would help them with that. Help us all to hear this good news again, afresh, in a way that liberates us for life that you've created us for, that Jesus has died for. Give us such hearing. In him I ask. Amen.